In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... A lot of them aren't even pretending to be in charge. Remove him from office. No justice, no peace. Cast a vote that will make you proud. The Betches Sup Podcast. Will you shut Who is up, man? Listen. Hello and welcome to the Betches Sup Podcast. I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Elise Morales. And I'm Caitlin Bird. And the Betches Up Podcast is your daily roundown of just some of the craziest shit in the news (laughs) brought to you by your three funniest friends. (laughs) (laughs) It's just no longer I can't in good faith say all the craziest shit. It's not possible. It's It's actually we would have to release the podcast three times a day. Three times. I mean, last week we did six episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Like last week, Sean was like, we broke a record on SUP last week, which is very exciting and i was like we did do six episodes <laughs> yeah. Like, what the fuck? Uh, yeah it's so, a lot to comprehend it's, it's a lot it's too much for any single human mind to be completely yeah. honest unless maybe you're on a high dose of dexamethasone perhaps <laughs> apparently you can <laughs> anything then you can really get going uh <laughs> It's funny because I feel like if we can get into this, but like the dexamethasone is like now like the legitimate sort of stand in for like years of speculation about Trump's substance use. And now we're like, fuck, yeah, it's the dexamethasone. It's like everybody had like five years of Adderall jokes ready and they're just coming out (laughs) with the dexamethasone. Uh, Let's get into it. So at the end of today's episode, we have an interview with Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill from New Jersey. We talked to her earlier this week. She is from, she represents a district uh, right outside of uh, the one that Trump visited when he probably knew that he was infected with a deadly contagion. So talk a little bit about that and just what her state has been going through in addition to she was a helicopter pilot. She was one of the national security people that came out in favor of impeachment. Do you guys remember that like letter when all those reps wrote it, the new ones that are kind of vulnerable was really the thing that moved the needle. So we talked to her, to her a little bit about that and just like why there's no other option, but Joe Biden at this point when it comes to national security. And then Elise, you have something fun going on tonight, right? Yes. Tonight, um, me and Sammy and Kay from Betches and rep Eric Swalwell and a bunch of other awesome guests, including Yvette Nicole Brown and Chelsea Handler are having a get out the vote event. It's a voting party. Tickets are still available and that'll go right up until the debate. So you can have a little fun before whatever that's going to be. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so definitely check it out. Uh, come our, your tickets go towards remedy pack, which is hosting it. And um, it's going to be a really, really great night. So if you go to my Instagram page, you can like, I have a swipe up on it right now and you can go get tickets. Yeah. And while we're on it, Caitlin, I don't think we've talked about your Patreon on the podcast yet. Let's we, talk we about Caitlin. might have, um, we might have, we might have mentioned it. Um, I, I've been tackling a lot of things recently, so I, I haven't had as much time yeah. uh, to, to update um, my Patreon. But 
I will definitely be doing feedback around the debates. I will uh, debate whether or not there are <laughs> subsequent ones. Yeah, whether there should be subsequent ones. Yeah, sure. That that's gonna be a thing that I discuss on my my Patreon. Cool. Uh, so. If you want, like, the the real inner um, workings of my mind, that's where it is. <laughs> cool. So for this episode, we're going to talk about the White House COVID outbreak. We're going to do a little VP debate preview. As we mentioned, we do this podcast every day, so we're not going to do too much on it. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Um, and we're going to look at a new report on the administration's role in family separation. I mean, they were the whole role, but a little, a little <laughs> in, more in about that they invented it and enacted <laughs> right? it. <laughs> Turns out they played a role. <laughs> All right. So first, let's check in on the state of the White House outbreak. As of this morning, ABC News reports that 24 coronavirus cases can be traced to this government building. Um <laughs> What, the, what are they going to do to it? Like, how do you sanitize it? I don't know. How do you sanitize, know. like, the army? You might have to pull a War of 1812 and just burn it. <laughs> that would be really funny. Maybe Trump supporters will do it on after he loses anyway. Yeah. This came after news that coronavirus had become infected with Stephen Miller. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Lots of variations of that joke, but I couldn't resist. You uh, have to. This was one. This was the only time that I saw, and I just a grin that I'd never really felt just came across my face. I personally loved the one on Twitter that mentioned the you know uh, check yourself if you are a Nazi memorabilia store or a haunted sex doll. <laughs> <laughs> it was like there's never been a more perfect. <laughs> where Stephen Miller probably is at any given moment. Oh, my God. That's so funny. Uh, I know. So this came, uh, he apparently had been working. I'm a little confused on his timeline. So he's been working from home for the past couple days and was testing negative. I guess they test him at home. But then when he returned to work yesterday, he tested positive. So I guess you just walk into the White House now and instantly you've got it. Yep. <laughs> That's uh, not right. He's been around all of them. He helped prep Trump in person for last week's debate, and he traveled aboard Air Force One uh, to that Minnesota campaign trip with Trump and Hope Hicks when Tr Hope Hicks, like, I just can't wait for this movie. Like, the scene where Hope Hicks realizes she's sick, and she's just mm -hmm. like, I got to talk to someone. Mm -hmm. She coughs into her handkerchief and, like, looks yeah. in the mirror and is like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, she's like, thank God I'm still beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah tw 24 people miller's wife also had it earlier yeah um, so this this bit of fan service also has a mid-season plot twist related to the debate tonight so stephen miller is married to katie miller who is mike pence's top spokesperson mm -hmm. who mike has pence. yolo tattooed on the inner of That's inside crazy. of her bottom lip uh, i just want I know. I saw that in the newsletter, and I got to tell you, I fact-checked it because I was like, what? <laughs> it's true. Stephen Miller's true. wife has YOLO tattooed on the inside of her bottom lip. Uh, it's wild. So she has been – she's been around – I think she's been, like, working from – none of it makes sense. Like, she's been working from home, but she did go to Salt Lake with him to prep him for the debate. She has apparently left out of an abundance of caution – and, you know, she's pregnant. She's pretty pregnant at this point. She did have COVID in May. 
Um, and, you know, they keep saying like they all test negative, they all test negative. But this all happened because they weren't taking any other precautions other than testing. Yes. I, I would even go further. I think in some ways, like I and I, I might have written this already on on the bird app, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought I you were referring it to you as your app, like the Caitlin Bird app. <laughs> I refer to it. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that it's very difficult for us to take seriously even the negative tests at this point. When they announce like we've been testing negative and like Stephen Miller's like, oh, I was testing negative all the time when I was at home, even after I went and hung out with all those people. But the moment I walked back into the White House, then I got a positive test. And you're like, are we sure about those negative tests? Are Mm -hmm. Like you are set, there's like a setup of this narrative, like, oh, it's definitely not. And I'm like, okay, but if you look at who they were spending time with, at what events they were at, where those events were held, it becomes very difficult to believe that somehow they're all just magically testing negative, even though they're sitting in the middle of like four people who tested positive. <laughs> then you're like, Okay, but I have the photo right there where positive, 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 positive. Right. You in the middle, you're negative. <laughs> Seriously. Just because it's very convenient. And they're also inveterate liars. Yeah, no, they lie about everything all the time for, for everything. Yeah. So I don't want to be like, a. I actually don't like to be too much of a conspiracy theorist, but I had my first COVID test over the weekend. It was so unpleasant that I fainted. I always, I faint when I feel like mm-hmm. intense discomfort. I, I always know it's going to happen. I do not believe they do that every day. You cannot <laughs> convince me that Trump gets that every day. And then I was reading about it. It's like they go really, really up there. If like you don't get tested all the time, they can't just do it again. Whereas the ones they're getting are the ones that are a little more surface level and don't get quite as much in there. And then if that's positive, that's when they go higher. But it's like, of course, you're probably getting all these false negatives. Yeah. And I will say as somebody who used to work for a company that had us do at-home testing um, weekly. You, you, We had self-administered tests where obviously you are not going all the way up your nose. You, I don't know how. It's impossible to do that to yourself. Yeah. You have to be a masochist. You'd be like, yeah, yeah that's fine. Uh, no, brain poke, absolutely not. <laughs> I hated um, it. <laughs> but we did have it go up like to like around here. And yeah. you can do that yourself. And it's both nostrils. And yeah. that one was pretty solid. But at the same time, like, I just have a lot of trouble believing that Donald Trump was, like, letting people put things up his nose. Like, no. I'm just trying to figure out, like, how often is that really happening? And then he'd probably say, like, oh, let's just say I got tested. Like, Yeah, why are we supposed to believe that they would be testing regularly when they're not taking any other precautions? Why would why would it be that one? They don't socially distance. People are just walking around hacking on each other. There's no plexiglass. There's no dividers. I mean, you saw even at the the Amy uh, Coney Barrett event where they're all around and basically like their chairs are like closer than I would have been okay with before. Before yeah. things got weird, yeah. like, like you're too close to me. Laps. I was like, "What is happening here?" It was already over capacity. It was already too much. I was like, "Absolutely, yeah. you know, I wouldn't have been there in the before times." Now, after, like everybody's getting, I'm just taking a stun gun, and like anybody gets within three feet of me, I'm just like. Mm. Uh, I saw like, an amazing video on Twitter of a lady 
a, a French lady who like a guy is too close to her in the line and you just hear her be like, and then she takes out a tape measure from her purse and shows him six feet and is like, I have my tape measure and I was like, I love this energy and that's what I need in my life. There was also a picture going around yesterday of a 102 year old woman in a homemade hazmat suit putting her absentee ballot in a mailbox. So not images that we, we should be seeing. Uh, Yeah. I mean, in a normal world, it's like, it's not safe for them to debate tonight. And they're also no. refusing. So prior to this news that Stephen Miller tested positive, Pence's team, uh, including Katie Miller, spent the day taunting the Biden-Harris campaign over wanting to use plexiglass barriers between the candidates at a debate held while a fairly large proportion of the administration is infected with the contagious deadly disease. I don't know why they wouldn't want to use the plexiglass other than to, like, appeal to Trump or hope that maybe she would then refuse and he wouldn't have to debate her. Or they're completely awful people, as we will discuss later in this podcast. And maybe they're hoping that Pence actually is positive and he can infect her. Right. Because Pence will get the full Walter Reed. Terrible people. I just, I'm just tossing it out there. Maybe the people are like, let's take babies away from their moms. Or also like, maybe let's infect the black lady. Yeah. So I definitely don't care about her at all. Yeah, no. Yeah, Katie Miller told the press, if Senator Harris wants to use a fortress around herself, have at it, which is just hilarious because it's like, ma'am, there is a nasty outbreak at your office and in your home. Yes. Of course, let her do whatever she wants. And like, she already has a built-in, like, visual statement about how like Pence runs the coronavirus task force and he has failed so badly that she has to have plexiglass. Yeah. I mean, Caitlin, I've seen you tweeting about this, but it's just crazy that there's been no talk of doing the debate virtually. Like, I don't understand why it couldn't be done. We, we did this for Kennedy Nixon, just to be clear, like they were in two separate locations and they did the debate. Wow. So if that is possible, like 50 plus years ago, and everyone was like, that's fine. Why? Why yeah. not for the pandemic that is raging through the country? Like, we, we did it when we didn't have to, and it was fine. And it was one of the most famous debates in American history. So I just feel yeah. like I feel pretty comfortable saying we could definitely do this over like Zoom, but then. It would be unfair, right? Unfair to the Democrats, because then it would be about substance and be very hard to just pull off theatrical moves that distract people from the fact that you don't know what the fuck you're saying and you're awful, terrible people. Yes. Yes, exactly. Right. Because if they debate over Zoom, then Joe Biden could be like, our next debate will be over Zoom. And then the moderator could mute all the participants and right. <laughs> release the chat. <laughs> right. I mean, I think debate, I mean, I think tonight's debate is going to have a lot of, you know, boss moves by Kamala Harris, but I wonder how much it's going to move the needle anyway. Like Pence is pretty disciplined and on message. His message is foul and weird. And like, it's creepy to watch him just restate all of these things. But he's, I think like it, I can't really see Trump and Biden doing a Zoom debate because it just seems like it would be chaos. But like, I think Kamala Harris and Mike Pence could make it work. I don't think it's going to. We'll see. I'm, I always say these things. And then the next day it's going to be like, oh, remember when I said that wouldn't be that eventful. 
<laughs> we'll see. I mean, really, all Kamala has to do is be like, Mike Pence was head of the coronavirus <laughs> right. task force. We're currently debating behind a plexiglass shield. The president himself has COVID. Right. And yeah, had they not agreed to the shield, she would have had to show up in full on PPE hazmat. And that would have been even a bigger like visual statement of the failure. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift, because now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click gift mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's Newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com. Newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. So speaking of the debate in one week from now, it's hard to sort of like conceptualize how close these things are because my concept of time is like, I don't really, I understand that it's October 8th today, but that debate's in one week. Uh, Trump says he's going to go. He wants to debate in person. His doctor or the person employed to say, Things that he wants. medical things about him yeah, yeah. <laughs> just person his his like head of his medical comms team says he has no <laughs> symptoms <laughs> and this man this man just like really oh he botched the first <laughs> press conference so bad that everybody hates him we hate him i think trump hates him everybody <laughs> hates this guy and his like cute little tailored doctor's coat <laughs> His costume. His costume. Yeah, he purchased at like a party city. (laughs) I just remember hearing where he was like, "We 
I understand that like when we started, uh, it seemed like we were hiding things, which we were. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like did you just say that aloud? <laughs> like, no, we were trying to mislead you. Just to be clear, we definitely were. But yeah. now you should definitely trust me. And I'm just like. <laughs> and then even like his boss, like another comps person told the Times, like, yeah, he was supposed to just make the president happy. That's that's who our audience is. Um, I don't like to post too much about Biden's lead or talk about it too much because I believe that Hillary had the same lead right about now. Although, I mean, I was going to say, although it was right after um, Access Hollywood, but this is sort of a similar like surprise moment. But Biden said, I won't debate this guy unless he has a negative COVID test, which is like a crazy thing to have to say. (laughs) But like you have to tell this person, like, if you are still infectious, I am not showing up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it just continues to get like worse and worse from just like this perspective of of I mean, Joe Biden's lead. I kind of think like his win is is very hard to not see. The issue is not whether or not Joe Biden can get more votes, which we already know he can because Hillary Clinton got more votes. (laughs) We're not confused about whether we're literally just like. Will these systems actually accurately reflect the votes that are cast? Yeah. That is where we are in our election systems, which is a terrible place to be because we understand fundamentally that something went wrong last time. We're not quite sure how wrong it went, but we had lots, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots over these last four years of indications of active Russian interference in the election whether it's from propaganda, whether it's from state systems being breached, from whether or not that's voter rolls, like we know that. And then you've got a Republican Party that's actively suppressing votes. So we already know that the voter suppression law that went into effect in Wisconsin stopped over 100,000 people from voting who were eligible to vote. Those people ended up getting turned away, told that their ballots didn't count, provisional ballots, et cetera. So we're not really worried about whether or not Joe Biden has the votes. We're worried about whether or not the election will reflect the votes yeah. that are cast. And that means when people are like, oh, I'm, I don't want to talk about the polling, which is very reasonable. You don't want to depress voters who are already like, well, it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. The inevitability of Joe Biden's win is immaterial to whether or not it actually shows up in yeah. our government, which is catastrophic but you yeah. should be aware that it doesn't matter how big the blowout is it we're going to have a massive fight over who is president or whose ballots count real quick yep. november 4th about 12:03 a.m. i'm mm-hmm. expecting there to be yelling about how joe biden is not really what he did not really win those states or whatever yeah That's- trump plans to send this to the supreme court yes like that is very obvious he in his crazy tweet storm which i'm sure we'll get to he was retweeting things about the election going to the supreme court he always tells us what he's going to do and he said multiple times he intends to take this to the supreme court so yeah after last week's episode caitlin when you talked about how like with all this great biden's raising a lot of money let's spend it on lawyers we got a lot of like dms like put everything she said on a shirt i want to <laughs> hand it to everybody it's like 
that's what we need to raise money for is for the stuff after November 4th. Cause they have, they have had a legal apparatus. They've already been doing this for so long. Cause they know it's the only, the only way that they can win. It's their plan. It's their the plan for the plan. Yeah. They, and, and, yeah, they want to win. They don't want to do it by getting the most votes. Yeah. They haven't, they, they know they haven't had that path for a decade or longer. Yeah. Way longer. When was the last time a Republican president was first time elected with the majority of votes? The answer is George H.W. Bush. That was the last time a majority of voters selected a Republican who is not an incumbent. You could go even further. Last time it happened was really Reagan because H.W. was an incumbent. In theory, because of he was was the vice VP. Like he had some over that allowed that to happen. It's very difficult to do three terms in a row. It's very difficult to pull off. It requires like being very effective at your job. And you saw that HW couldn't extend that. Even a plurality would not support him. Mm -hmm. Um, And Bill Clinton won on a plurality, not a majority. But then he like crushed it in his reelection. So like Mm -hmm. we've seen that Democrats have been winning the majority of voters for a long time. Republicans are extremely aware that they no longer maintain the majority of voters. This is true even at the state level. They have gerrymandered inside people's states to elect Republican majorities despite not getting the majority of votes. This is designed to disproportionately give power to sparsely populated areas where it's much easier to maintain Republican control. Yes. Than Democratic areas where it's much harder to because they're very diverse and you require dealing with lots of different interest groups. When you only got like 500 people, you know, yeah. Yeah. state of Montana. No, I'm kidding. You're a big <laughs> state. You got a lot of people. Um, 500,000. <laughs> a few hundred thousand. Um, but the point being, like, it's much easier to run a city of a few thousand people and get them all on board with something than it is to run a city of 8 million people and get all of them to agree on something. Yeah. That doesn't mean that Bill de Blasio doesn't suck. He's very bad. <laughs> yes. I just want to be sure. It's probably hard. He sucks at it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people are good at hard jobs. He is not one of those people. Yeah. I mean, Trump said last night, I'm not going to do, I'm not, I don't, I've instructed Senate Republicans to no longer focus on stimulus. I want them to focus on getting Amy Coney Barrett through. And that's because they know Senate Republicans right now represent 15 million fewer Americans than Senate Democrats, yet they hold a majority. And this is the case in a majority of every like body in this country. It's absurd. It's absurd. You don't have to win. This is everything Caitlin was just saying. It's like, you really don't have to win by that much as a Republican to maintain power. Um, So obviously as soon as Trump tweeted that uh, the stock market, literally, I mean, you see in a picture, it just tanked immediately. And then a couple hours later he said, okay, fine. I guess I'll consider all of these things that have been offered to him already. Uh, And it rebounded slightly, but who knows? We'll see. But that was a pretty callous. I mean, last night he appeared to have no, I didn't understand what his political strategy was anymore. I think not that I ever have, but I don't know that there's, I, I think we're in caged animal territory. Like I think he's just sort of lashing out indiscriminately to say crazy shit. He's on some sort of high powered steroid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
this is the this is the fascism stage the yeah. part where like there's no pretending that the systems matter and there's no pretending that popular will matters um and kind of the toss just really quickly back to the you don't need a majority thing mm-hmm I've said before, but I, it's always worth repeating that the Civil War was not between yeah. two equal forces, okay? It was between a group of six million white people, their three million enslaved humans, okay? Enslaved people and 21 million free people. <laughs> the three million enslaved people were trying as hard as they could to be part of the 21 million <laughs> free people. Okay, so yeah. it's really 24 million versus 6 million, which is an insane ratio. Insane. And the fact that we continue to treat it like it was like normal. But here's something important. Slave power has successfully taken over every single branch of the federal government. They were running the court. They were running the Senate. They were running the House. These decisions, yeah. even though they didn't have strong majorities, it was harder for the, the majority to govern the country. We constantly compromised away like we were equal partners. Missouri compromised, mm-hmm. leading Kansas, anything that led up to the war. It constantly was, hey, should we negotiate bet- like uh, a free country based off of policies that help everyone? Slave owners, nope, no, we're pretty sure it's just us, six million people telling you what to do. If you touch our slavery in any way, we will murder you. And then they <laughs> did, and then they got crushed. But that's what how mm-hmm. ratios work. And yeah. we are in a stage where the vast majority of Americans, whether they're aware of it or not, are on the side of people who want a democracy that represents everyone. And there's just a group of people who don't. And they're not very big. And we should treat them like they are weird and not <laughs> Like Donald Trump supporters are not an equal force in American politics. No. They've been given a disproportionate share of power and therefore we feel like we have to treat them like that, but we should not do not treat them like that. They're bad. Yeah. Yeah. And it is so hard when the message is like, I think people hear things like that and they think, great. So the will of the people is very clear and it'll be heard. And if I have, if I don't feel like going out that day, then it's fine. No, no, no. We have to overcorrect by so much. And it's not fair. We can't, we can't keep saying it's not fair. Like, of course it's not. We'd have to fix it. They're not going to help us. They're no, they don't want fairness. That's not their objective. We can't keep acting like they are negotiating in good faith for a fair outcome. Of course they're not. No. And I do feel like that's been a problem with the Democrats often is that like we let Republicans set the terms of debate so often and we let them like create the baseline. And it's like, only five people think this. Like, why are yeah. we having this conversation? It's the same about masks. It's about climate change. It's like, you're the only people who think this. Why right. are we talking to you? And the, even the New York Times will still do, you know, balanced headlines where they're like, Trump's, uh, you know, potentially masterful handling of this, according to five people. And it's, <laughs> it's like according well, to five people oh. who've never read a book. <laughs> right. <laughs> Like, you don't have to give that perspective. You don't. And the fucking author is a guy who works who works at the White House press corps and is infected at home with his wife. You don't have to write both headlines. Mm-mm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's tricky. I definitely had to come around to that, too, but did quicker. Just like, oh, right. You can't. There's no two sides here. Like, if you if you if you if you think you're giving equal weight, you're really just 
pulling the balance way towards them. And like you said, letting them set the terms and it's, it's creepy. It has to stop. Yeah. And it, it's so clear when you get to something like the, the administration's department of justice, the decision, the coordinated developed deliberate decision to separate children from undocumented immigrants. And most importantly, and it feels really important to establish this because this is international law we have signed as a treaty asylum Okay, people, it's one thing to say, we said immigration law. Okay, well, you're pieces of shit, but whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, and, and to some degree, that's that's how the system works. Like, there's not a way to get around what they want to do in terms of immigration. But asylum is a system that is internationally governed. We agree to certain terms. If you flee to a country as a refugee seeking asylum, you are not supposed to be separated from your child. I just, I can't even express how i know it's like it's all bad it's It's very bad it's bad in all the ways but like the fact that we broke international law and that that break in international law is a crime against humanity it's not just like okay well we kind of fucked up like no 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 they committed a a crime that is up there in like human trafficking genocide those are the levels of crime that we're talking about and they all sat down in a room and were like oh yeah to be even harsher we are not doing enough don't worry about the age of the kids says raw j rosenstein and as you can see he was neck deep in a an actual crime against not our country not just the people that they tortured yeah. the children who are going to live with permanent trauma who are owed at this point hundreds of thousands possibly millions of dollars each one of them from our government but <laughs> against our very constitution, the very laws that we yep, have agreed no, it's, it's bound insane. by. And this is from I, a new, the I'm, New York Times uh, released a new report, basically detailing like the Department of Justice, the highest, highest up people in the Department of Justice were the ones literally just calling people to say, why aren't you taking these kids away from children? You have to. Yelling at them, like Caitlin said, finding out that they hadn't applied these standards to infants in a couple cases and said, what are you doing? This applies to everybody. This applies to babies. That's, that's the point. So like you're saying, Caitlin, like separating children, it's not like, oh, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. It's an unfortunate externality of the policy. It's like, no, no, that was a whole idea. That's yeah. the, the cruelty is the point. Yes. It was a deliberate choice knowing that it was such an inhumane act that it would maybe stop some immigrants from coming here, but also knowing that there were millions on their way and already at the border. You know what I mean? Like and escaping things that were worse or just as bad. Like that's not going to be a deterrent for these particular asylum seekers. People don't up and leave their country or send their kids alone or bring their kids across the fucking Rio Grande because they think America seems fun. Like that, you know, when I talk to, you know, my grandparents left Cuba after the revolution. And when I talk to them about why they made that decision, it's because they were basically like shit is going down. And we don't know if we don't leave now, we don't know if we'll be able to leave in the future. You know, they had to send my dad as a young child and his brother ahead of time alone. That was like, I mean, till the end of her life, my grandma cried talking about that decision. Like, 
my dad was able to go stay with a family that they knew in the States. But even still, that was a traumatizing experience for him to be separated for the months that they were apart until my grandparents could come over. And that wasn't even half as inhumane as what is happening right now. Yeah, it's, it's devastating. I, this next administration will need like a whole new department just to, just to prosecute and investigate all the crimes done by this one. I wanted to end on one positive note, which is that a grand jury has indicted the gunslinging St. Louis couple and RNC speakers, Mark and Patricia McClough. McCloskey on charges of showing pointing guns at protesters. I believe this is a felony. And in some states, they don't let former felons vote. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. And isn't that mm. fun? Yes. Well, yes. Too bad. So sad. Uh, stick around, everybody, for my interview with Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill. Today, I am here with Representative Mikey Sherrill, who serves as the U.S. Representative for New Jersey's 11th Congressional District. She has represented the state there since 2019. Thank you so much for joining us, Congresswoman. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So I wanted to know quickly, there's so much going on in the news day today that I wanted to note that we're chatting on Monday, October 5th in the afternoon. This interview is going to publish probably Wednesday morning. Uh, so who knows where, what the world will look like then, but we're, we're, I know, I know we're, we're going to go with the information we have. So today I wanted to start with today, obviously we're continuing to monitor the president's positive COVID-19 diagnosis. You know, we're still trying to learn a lot more about the white house about, uh, from the white house about the exact timeline, but what is known is that the president made a trip to New Jersey for a fundraiser, even after learning that a close aide had tested positive. So Questions even remain about whether the president, too, knew he was positive, but he was absolutely putting residents of your state, your community at risk. When, what went through your mind when you heard that the president had, had known he had been in contact with an infected person when he traveled to New Jersey? So, uh, you know, I'm very happy to hear the president's doing well. Um, we we want to have a strong president of the United States. But what concerns me is, um, like so many of the responses to coronavirus, uh, you know, he's really not giving the message that we need him to give keep people safe. And so with the numerous gatherings he's been at where people aren't wearing masks, his flouting of wearing a mask, even making fun of people who are wearing masks. Um, and now I think recently he's been out saying it's not that bad. Don't be afraid of coronavirus. You know, I think what we need right now is a real leader for the nation who is going to to present the best science. We don't want people to be afraid of coronavirus because we want people to have a reason to feel like our nation's moving past it. We want people to know that when they go out, other people are wearing masks, they're social distancing. We want to know that we're getting the caseload down. And instead, we're constantly hearing about increased number of cases. And so when I heard that the president was in my, you know, in my state, uh, right outside my district. People that were at that event are in, you know, are from my district, um, and that he possibly knew he had coronavirus, and, um, and, and you know, dealing with that and trying to make sure that all the people that were there were qu- are quarantining correctly. And um, when that doesn't seem to, you know, the contact tracing that's going on in my state right now has been really problematic. Trying to get information out of that event has been difficult. And it's just this continued absence of leadership in an area when this country is facing a national crisis. Um, and in fact, often doing the opposite. And when we see a president spotting the rules, who's 
doing events where hundreds of people get infected. And then I think what's not translating is he's getting the best care that the country has to offer. And not everyone in this country has access to that. And not everyone in this country has a choice. So mm -hmm. we had people working at Bedminster that needed that job, that need to get a paycheck, that couldn't say to the patrons there, look, could you put on a mask? Could you socially distance? They would have probably been kicked out. And yet they're now at risk too. And I don't think they're going to have the same level of care that the president has had access to. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's especially heartbreaking to think of all the people that had no choice but to be there, who exactly. I'm sure many of whom, like you mentioned, do live in your district. Yep. Yeah. What have you heard from your constituents as some of their sort of greatest challenges in, in recent months? Well, maybe, maybe it's because I have engaged in this conversation so many times with my yeah. kids not being in school. Yeah. You know, I, I have four kids. Um, they have not been in in-person school since March 12th. Um, I have gone down to Washington quite frequently over the last several weeks. We've had um, a lot of legislation. I've at times taken, um, you know, my oldest just started high school. I've taken her down there with me to make sure we're on top of it. I'm constantly calling back home, trying to make sure the other ones are doing their work. Um, you know, my husband and I have been balancing this. I've talked to other members of the caucus. I just was having conversations with other moms in Congress about how this just isn't working. It's just not working. I, I don't know if that's understood by people that don't have school age kids. I mean, maybe people assume like so many of us, you know, that, oh, well, my office got on Zoom and it was a lot better than I thought it would be. And that's yeah. my experience at work. Like, gosh, this, I would never have thought we could do all of this remotely. That's not what's going on with homeschooling. I, I'm here to yeah. give testimony to the fact I that know. it's not working. For it's so funny. Every mom knows exactly the, the date their children last entered a school. <laughs> like every mom knows the last time their 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 life was normal. And I don't think that a lot of not every member of Congress could sort of. We've talked to Katie Porter about this too, where it's like, well, you know, how is the how is this working? It's not. not there is nothing is working. Katie what do you Porter mean? and I've had some conversations <laughs> about this. Yeah, she's it been is, very frank. I've probably talked to most of the moms in Congress about this. We are all losing our minds, as as are so many parents across the country. And it's not just about our kids being in school. It's about so many people being able to work, do their jobs, and mm -hmm. it's. It's very difficult right now uh, for parents to find that path forward. Yeah, yeah. This is a good place to sort of shift gears into talking about caregiving more broadly. As I mentioned, you're a mom of four who also works outside the home in addition to caregiving. Um, and throughout the summer, Joe Biden has discussed strategies to bolster the caregiving economy. Uh, could you kind of explain what is encompassed by the caregiving economy? Wow, the caregiving economy is so complex in this country and there's just not enough support. And this is this is really something that predates coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Like so many moms, um, as I got pregnant, um, because I was the one that was pregnant and then took maternity leave, I was the one that was doing, the, you know, hunting for the child care. And especially with my first child, I thought, oh, I'll just go to, you know, I'll go hire somebody. And I, I didn't feel comfortable with anyone I was interviewing, you know, to leave them alone in the house with my child. So then I went to daycare providers. And daycare providers often don't take newborns. And suddenly I'm like, you know, the time, it's like hour, like sand through an hourglass. And yeah. my time is passing. And I don't know what I'm going to do and how I'm going to get back to work. And, um, and so there's so many pieces of it that people are putting together. 
And what Joe Biden understands is that this is a complex issue, but one that has never received the support that we need. So I have talked now during coronavirus to child care providers in the district. So many of them aren't sure they're going to be able to reopen. They weren't given enough support in, in trying to reopen. They weren't on good financial footing before the coronavirus and certainly weren't able to withstand it as they were shut down. Um, and yet now we're so we need them so much if we're going to get people back to work. So um, I've put forth some legislation. The Congress has put forth legislation to try to support people. Um, and I think this is a critical issue that Biden understands not just for coronavirus, but how we as working parents, and I would say um, just because of my experience, working moms especially, have got to have a better pathway because so many women in my town didn't go back to work. They just couldn't solve for that childcare piece of it as they were trying to get back to work with the expense and the, you know, feeling secure for their child. So I think that's a critical piece of it. And I'll tell you just because of what we were speaking of, um, the other thing that Joe Biden has been so focused on that as a mom, I'm really worried about is that critical learning gap that's going on right now in this country and how, even when we get kids back in school, and even when parents get back to work, how are we going to make sure that this past year isn't a loss for certain kids that sets them back for the next, for the rest of their life, really? And I right, think that's right. a critical piece also for child care of how we're going to make sure that there, there aren't this class of children that got so behind during coronavirus that they never catch up. Right, right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And you have, you know, an issue of are there going to be caregiving centers to return to? And, you know, there's we're hearing more and more this week about how a lot of women in, in maybe white collar, the knowledge economy, are less likely even to return to work because there's been such a sustained period. Do you even have concerns about just sort of the future of women's equality and the way that this period has really exposed some of the challenges with the caregiving economy and how much work it always sort of needed to, to strengthen? I feel both incredibly concerned about women in the workforce right now. And, I, and you know, the studies are showing that coronavirus is impacting women in the workforce worse um, than other groups. I also, though, feel like this presents an opportunity, especially under a Biden president and hopefully a Democratic Senate, to really um, take a broad look at what caregiving in this country looks like and how support for women is necessary keep women in the workforce. And by that, again, I mean, as, as women in my town were facing some of these caregiving issues, uh, many of them, and, and I'm in a suburb of New York City. So, so many of us were commuting when we moved here to New York City. And it's really hard if you want to say, get back to your kids, um, you know, sing along at two o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. That's you taking the rest of the day off work to get from right. the city, right? That's not just, oh, I'll go down the street and then I'll go back to work. So many, many, you know, I ended up with a job in Newark, which was far closer. Um, so many of the women that had part-time or consulting jobs, those were the first jobs to go. And so um, as we see, it's not just women who are having trouble working because of child carriages during coronavirus. It's women that have lost their jobs first in this economy. And I also was talking to someone at a cancer research center who said, the men, the male researchers are churning out so much research right now. Really? And the women aren't. And I, I'm sitting here in my house and my husband's in his office and I have four kids who I'm desperately afraid somebody's going to come <laughs> screaming in the doorway. 
And I get it. Like I don't, that makes total sense to me right now. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I do appreciate about Joe Biden, of course, we all look forward to the day where we have a woman in the White House and then maybe that person is a mother. But one thing I do think about with Joe Biden a lot is that he was suddenly a single parent and he, as well as other candidates like Elizabeth Warren spoke at length during the candidate, during the campaign about the, the support that they had that during those times she had her aunt come live with her and he had family take care of him. And so he has like a very extensive plan for this based on what seems like his own experience raising two children by himself. And I think that makes such a difference. In fact, I put some of my husband's engagement down to, I was finishing my law school degree um, when my daughter was one year old and we were wow. living in New York and I had to commute down to Georgetown for half the week. And so he was the one that had to like leave work, pick her up at the daycare center, take her home on the subway, which was a nightmare. It was like the worst <laughs> hour of her day as she's screaming on a crowded subway. But I, I, I think that really forced him to take an active role and really gave him that sense of, of how this was all going, you know, and how hard <laughs> it was and all the pieces of it and how complex it was. And I'm sure Joe Biden's experience as a single dad during that critical time when his kids were young gave him so much more empathy for how difficult this can be for parents and especially single parents. Um, you know, when we think that 70% of single parent households are run by women and how hard that is to, when I, right now we're barely keeping it together and I, you know, and I'm married and, and, you know, we have, and every once in a while, you know, and when my sisters live near DC, so like I, I go down there and I dump a kid off with one of them, nice. <laughs> um, you know, we're pulling all the pieces together. I, I can't even imagine doing this as a single parent and how hard it is. And I have single parent friends who are like, yeah, it's every, every bit as hard as you think it is. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think about, I don't have kids yet, but I always think it's like, until you do, you don't really, the main thing is like, where do I put this thing when I go to work? I know. Now I feel guilty just... telling you all the challenges. You're never going to have kids. You're going to be like, oh my gosh, I talked to Mikey Cheryl and that was, yeah. a, that's a tough, tough thing to do. Well, you did still manage throughout your national security backgrounds, really moved the needle on an important conversation about impeachment when you, you came forward to support an inquiry based on the national security threat that had been posed. Now we're seeing a huge outpouring of support, specifically for the Biden candidacy from the national security community at large. Why do you think there is such uniform support? Um, so we, you know, from the very beginning of this administration, something that concerned me was um, the drawdown at the State Department, you know, so much of what we do in national security is dependent on good diplomatic relationships. Um, we in the, in the Department of Defense, you know, and, and that's where I come from as, as a former Navy helicopter pilot, that it's really diplomacy that gives us our strength, our ties to our allies that gives us such strength worldwide. Wide. And I was so concerned as we were drawing down the State Department. Um, of course, I became increasingly concerned with really, you know, decisions by the president to become really close to Vladimir Putin, um, to, you know, seem like he's very entranced with dictators across the world. And yet our Democratic allies, uh, he seems not to invest in that relationship. And to the point where in some of the diplomatic crises we've seen, we've kind of been there alone, which has been striking to me to watch our interactions with Iran or, you know, different events in the Straits of Hormuz and to not see our allies standing shoulder to shoulder with us 
um, has been really troubling. And Joe Biden has a, you know, has spent most of his career in the foreign policy arena. He knows all of our allies. He knows all of all those <laughs> that I'm close to as well. Yeah. But he he has been working with them for decades. He represents people across the world a a voice um, of strength for democracy. Someone who's going to invest in democracy not only here at home but around the world, which makes us stronger, which ensures that that we are seeing our deal ideals promoted across the world our values, but our economic needs as well through our allies. So I, I, to me, Joe Biden is the national security choice is, is a natural choice, uh, not just because we've seen this president who has a huge failure of leadership and the foreign policy and national security arena, but also because Joe Biden is just so good at it. It really has been so long since we've heard it framed as, you know, right now we have national security threats because there is no diplomacy. And to hear it framed again as how it should be, which is that the national security concerns should be prioritizing uh, diplomacy. But my last question for you, you've had such a wild first term. I was curious, what's the most memorable moment from your first term? Wow. Um you know, this is this is the the most memorable moment is really getting still. Uh, yeah, everything else is getting sworn in. You know, yeah. I mean, you you really um, you go there. Uh, it's it's sort of this this. If you're a parent, um, you bring your children, and if you have young children, it's sort of this extra level of of anxiety because you're just making sure yeah. that they all you know hold it together and don't end up punching each other on the floor of the House of Representatives. Um, luckily, there's ice cream in the cloak, cloak room for, you know, if you ever do have kids and are in Congress, it's not that bad. <laughs> giving you sure, pe- people probably got closer to punching each other on the House floor than your kids so, did. I don't know. My sons have punched each other on the floor of the House, not when I was getting started. Yeah, Good. We had to talk about how mortified I was. But um, so, it, you know, it is this moment um, where you're you're taking an oath to the Constitution and it just really lays out your duty to your country. And it's always moving. It, it, honestly, I've taken that oath quite a few times. Um, as I was, the first time I took it when I was 18 years old and sworn in on I-Day at the Naval Academy 30 years ago. Um, and I took it when I was promoted in the Navy. I took it at the U.S. Attorney's Office. But to stand there on the floor of the House and be reminded of why I fought so hard to get into Congress to serve the people of New Jersey and then what my job was and what I was swearing allegiance to and what I had to do was really incredibly moving. That's so cool. I think I want to do that. (laughs) That sounds good. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time, Congresswoman. Until the return of democracy, I'm Amanda Duberman, and this is the Betches Sup Podcast. The Betches Sub Podcast is produced by Sean Kilby and Amanda Duberman. Our podcast managers are Mike Coscarelli and Sean Kilby. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Artwork by Brittany Levine. Be sure to follow us at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send your emails to sup at Betches.com. Betches.